What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Mission Suite podcast. I'm Ian Campbell. I'm CEO of Mission Suite. Welcome to the Insight Series from the Mission Suite podcast. This is a podcast for business owners where we'll be interviewing business coaches around the country for their insights on building a more successful business. Today we have M. David Stonger. He is a consulting psychologist of M. David Consulting, and I'm excited to be chatting with him today to learn a bit more about what he'll be able to bring us. David, thank you so much for jumping on this call with me today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Of course. Where are you joining us from? Uh, I am located in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Nice, nice. And um, is that where you started your business? Yeah, it is. Um, I transitioned from working as a consultant with the military to uh, owning my own business and working as a consulting psychologist. Um, I have a background in clinical psychology, so it was much more kind of in the the medical academic model uh, before I moved to business. And can I ask what inspired you to start your own company? Well, it was during the pandemic. Um, the first, gosh, I was I was working at a, a military medical clinic for the first, gosh, year of the pandemic, and we got slammed. Um, there were just so many people that needed mental health help. Um, the resources just were not there to help all of the people. Um, and after about a year of just working my tail off, um, I was feeling pretty burnt out. I needed to change. I needed to do something different. So I transitioned from the clinical world to consulting. Um, and consulting psychology is an interesting profession. It's a specialty within the American Psychological Association. Um, but about two thirds of the practitioners there come from clinical and counseling backgrounds. So um, it's kind of a professional refugee association, if you want to think of it that way, uh, because there's a lot of folks from other professions that started elsewhere, but moved into the business world. Uh, and I'm certainly one of them. And with uh, psychiatry and business, how does that intertwine with each other? Yeah, psychology and business is pretty fundamental. Um, anytime you have human beings, you're going to have psychological issues, right? Anytime the interpersonal interactions you know, even just one person who is a solopreneur like myself is going to have psychological struggles. I don't necessarily mean in a clinical way. I just mean that it's hard to get everybody on the same page at the same time aimed in the same direction. And whether that's if you're goal setting, if you're working in teams, if you want to talk about having a healthy, productive culture, all of those things are psychological in nature. So anytime there's human beings, there's a need for psychological consulting. And so when you're talking to these business owners, what's one of the biggest struggles that you see them having? Right now, I would say one of the biggest struggles is retention, right? Finding and keeping talent. That's such a huge thing right now with the market the way that it is, because individuals are looking for getting their needs met, right? If there's a company out there that's hiring and they're willing to pay you know, $10,000 a year more than what you can get it where you're currently working, you know, the, the grass looks pretty green on the other side in that case. And so for the small business owner in particular that has limited resources, but is trying to keep those really great workers, being able to leverage other means of 
keeping those folks around is really, really critical. Um, there's, you know, there's an adage that says people don't leave jobs, they leave other people. And I think when we look at the tight labor market, that's very, very true. Sure, money is important. You, know, you got to get your needs met. You know, you need to be able to put food on the table and put a roof over your head. At the same time, if you're going to be absolutely miserable doing that, then eventually it's going to add up and you're going to need to find a place where you want to work and you want to come to work every day and you want to show up and you want to be productive and you want to help. Those are just basic human attributes. We all want to have something that we don't despise in the morning, right? We want to be able to go to a place that says, yeah, you know, I, I like it here. It's pretty good. You know, the, the money could be better, comma, sure, but it's got a lot of other things that really matter to me. And so when we talked before, we talked a bit about the 40-hour work week. Uh, and I and I think since COVID, there's been this shift of people wanting to do hybrid workplaces. And that is still a debate on production. What are your thoughts on the 40-hour work week or really the hybrid or really the hybrid working area? Yeah. So I, I think there's two separate points that I want to make here. The first one is about the 40-hour work week. Um, the 40-hour work week, the history of it, and this is also entwined with the history of labor, both in the United States and worldwide. Um, you know, we didn't used to have a standard 40-hour work week. It used to be, you know, upwards of 60 hours, maybe would half a day off on Sunday. And so in part, the labor movement across the world, um, you know, Western Europe, the United States, um, made significant strides in fighting for a really standardized set time. And that 40 hour week was sort of the, what emerged from that is, OK, we're going to work for eight hours a day. You have a mandatory set amount of time to eat and you get a mandatory set number of breaks. So that idea of, OK, you have 40 hours a week in which to be productive. It started with a lot of the industrial and manufacturing industry. I mean, this was really coming out of the Industrial Revolution, starting in, in Britain and um, Western Europe, traveled here to the United States. Um, and it's that idea has been with us for a long time, right? You have to be at your at your location, you know, on the, the assembly line, making your widgets or whatever the thing is, right? Whatever you're producing. And so this idea of you must be there for X amount of time doing the thing has really seeped into our collective consciousness. If you're not there doing the thing for X amount of time, what is it that you're really doing? How can we really trust that you're being quote unquote productive, right? Mm -hmm. Now, there are absolutely industrial and manufacturing jobs today where you have to be there. You have to be on the line, right? You're creating a thing, you know, and it's tangible. And when you're creating a, a tangible product, yeah, you're going to need humans on that line making sure that the product is up to snuff. Sure. But as we've transitioned more into a knowledge economy, especially now in the 21st century, that idea of you have to work for 40 hours or else you're not productive, it's really beginning to be questioned. And frankly, in my opinion, rightfully so, because the human brain doesn't work in, a, in an enforced way for 40 consecutive hours, right? Okay, I'm gonna sit at my desk from 8 a.m. until 12 p.m. 
I will work and produce X amount of intellectual imaginary things for four hours without stop. I mean, when does that ever happen? <laughs> never. The answer is never, right? As humans, we don't work that way, right? You get up for a coffee break, you get up to go talk to a colleague, you go wander the halls, right? You go stretch your legs, you, you need to go to the copier, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. We take these breaks. We have to take these mental breaks because staring at a screen for four consecutive hours, taking a, a mandatory lunch break, 30, 45, an hour, whatever that time frame is, and then coming back for another four consecutive hours, you've been at work for nine hours, you know, and pr- productive chunks of four hours with one hour in between. That, that's not, that's not how human beings work, right? Yeah. Now, in that manufacturing setting, you had a count, right? We've produced X number of products, right? Mm-hmm. And when those products are the lifeblood of your company, right? If we don't produce X amount, we go under. Sure. Okay. Then you can say, yep, we've had people on the line this many and we can count it in the end. All right. But with work from home, with hybrid work, that's totally different. And so I think that 40 hour work week has really sort of started to shift and we've started to see people that have pushed back and said, listen, I can be productive at home. What's the end goal? What do you want from me? Right. Am I producing widgets on an assembly line? No, I'm not. Right. You know, I'm doing complex calculations on my computer, whether that's with spreadsheets, whether you're in sales, whether you are, you know, in HR marketing, whatever it is, right. The tangible product just is not the same. And so human beings can have bursts of energy, innovation, productivity outside of the confines of that classic, you know, butts in chairs, four hours break, four hours kind of mindset. And so I think the the hybrid remote work movement that the pandemic accelerated, didn't start, it accelerated, is now showing up and butting up against that we must be in person, we must work for 40 hours, this is productivity, kind of old school mindset. And so it really is a clash of the new versus the old of the traditional way of doing things and measuring productivity versus newer ways. And the newer way, no matter what it is, is always going to feel uncomfortable. Change as for human beings is always uncomfortable. We don't like it. Yeah. We're constantly pushing it. We're constantly engaged in it, but we don't like it. Right. And yeah. This kind of gets to the to the lifespan, right? Usually, when we're younger and everything is new, you know, we're trying to push these new ideas. We're trying to trying to get these new things to move out, right? But there comes a peak, sort of cognitively, where our information, our cultural awareness, etc., tends to crystallize, right? It tends to harden a little bit more, right? We tend to become a little bit more inflexible because we're relying more on acquired knowledge than we actually are on the flexibility to try new things. And so, you know, basic biology and human cultural creations tend to clash and create these movements of, okay, we got to do this now, but uh, no, we need to do the old way. No, but we need to do the new way. You know, it's happened over and over throughout human history. And right now is no different. It's just the current one is the remote hybrid work in the 40 hour workplace. And I think there's a big debate between generations at this point because like you were saying it's the it's the old way 
where there's not too much change. It's getting pretty solidified at a certain point. And then the new is coming back is like, hey, there's these new ways to think and do things and it's faster and get to this point of we can actually get more work done quicker so we don't have to work for so long and we can actually do stuff that we enjoy. And so we have a better mental health. And I think that the just change in general is just super hard for everyone. And never, it was probably never an idea in the past of like, oh, we won't have to work as long or we won't have to work as hard to a point of mentally exhausting ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so what is a lot of the main arguments that you've seen between the hybrid work week and or just the 40 hours? Yeah, yeah. So before we kind of talk about generational differences, I, I do want to kind of touch on those myths of the hybrid workplace that I think a lot of people, especially perhaps uh, those who are managers at the C-suite level, kind of older workers that are used to a certain way of doing things. I think these are where some of these ideas are propping up and where some of the pushback on hybrid remote is coming from. Um, One of the big ones is that employees can't be trusted to work at home, right? And that really stems from a perception of control. So a lot of times with managers, C-suite executives, folks want to exert a degree of control over the workforce, over the workplace, to try and ensure a level of productivity and profitability, right? Yeah. Now, I'm going to put something out there. This is psychologically, this is not uh, controversial at all. But in the business setting, it doesn't really land as well. But I'm going to say it anyway, okay? Control is an illusion. And the idea that we can control the outcomes of one person, five people, you know, a company of 500, it's ridiculous. We can't. We absolutely can't. Now, you tell a C-suite executive that they can't control their business. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute, sir. Hang on. (laughs) But the ways in which human beings try and control others, their environment, and the future really tell you a lot about what their perspectives are. So if you have the kind of micromanaging, all up in your business kind of manager, they're going to try and dictate, you know, who, what, when, where, why, how. They're going to try and just tell you everything and just, you know, get on you to really do it. Do it in this way. Mm-hmm. And people tend not to respond very well to that. You know, I, it's it's hard. I haven't really encountered folks in, in uh, you know, the work that I do that love micromanagers. You know, <laughs> I, I don't think that's very common. Hey, do you, you know, do you love the person that's always looking over your shoulder? Oh, yeah, I love it. Said no. <laughs> it's just not how it works and yet this idea of control if i see you if you're in the office then i can control your behavior then i can control the outcome then i can you know predict and understand and try and and stop any problems before they arise right yeah but the truth is you can't right we can't control anybody else, the only thing that we can control as individuals are our own choices, right? And so from that kind of psychological psychological perspective of, yeah, you can really only control your own thoughts. And even then, not always, right? 
So if you kind of take that and apply it to a business setting, boy, that makes, you know, managers and executives very, very uncomfortable because that's telling them, I'm like, listen, you can only choose. You can't control. Oh, what, what, you know, what am I supposed to do with that? Well, the issue is one of control and trust. How much do you trust your people, right? Can you provide them with a kind of work environment with the clear goals and the, the mile markers along the way to be able for them to say, okay, I'm working towards this. Here's how I know I'm, I'm you know, achieving the goals that have been set for me. And if I don't, here are the consequences. So in a remote environment, it's not really that much different than what you would get in person. But the perspective of, you know, especially from that upper level, well, I could just go march down there and wag my finger and change things. Yeah, you know, that's in that's ingrained. That's something that's been around for a long time and it's really, really hard to change. You know, so management can only be done in person. Um, you know, collaboration isn't as effective without face-to-face -face time. Um, you know, wanting a hybrid option means you aren't committed to the company. Those are the kinds of ideas that are, that grow from that in-person first, second, and last, right? Because of that sense of control. And so I think if you start to move away from in-person means control, which means profit, if you move away from that chain of thought and instead you start to build trust with your employees, you start to set goals that are not as linear, but can allow the person to be more flexible and innovative, to use their time like an adult, instead of saying, oh, yep, you know what? You took two minutes too long on that break. What are you doing? So I think those are some of the, the root causes of this hybrid in-person pushback. Um, and I think the, the best companies, the ones that are really going to survive and thrive are the ones that are going to lean into this idea of, you know, we need to be more flexible with our workforce. We're going to retain better talent and we're going to learn how to trust these folks. Here are our bottom lines. Here are the goals and here are the expectations. We want you to meet them. We want you to succeed, right? You're there for guidance. You're there for clarity. You're there for support. But at the end of the day, when you select talented individuals, supporting their talents means they're going to produce for you. And not only that, they're going to appreciate the heck out of you for supporting them, allowing them to grow, not restraining them, and allowing them to, to do what they do best, what you hired them for. Because at the end of the day, you hired them. <laughs> if, if you didn't want them to do what they do, why'd you hire them? <laughs> I think it's, it sounds like a strict parent almost. Um, and as some sort of way of uh, control. I mean, even being in the office, some, they could see them sitting at the computer, but they could be playing Tetris for all you know. It's, it's really, I, I haven't really thought of it that way of a controlling type of mindset of if they're here and I can see them, then there's productivity happening. And that's really, when you put it that way, it's this weird type of control thing at the end of the day, no matter what. And I like how I mean, COVID really did call out a lot of things and push a 
a more awareness towards mental health. We, as a current employee and an employee in the past as well, driving to work, so getting ready to get into the, the car and driving to work is about an hour. And then you get to work, you're at there, you're there for nine, 10 hours, depending on the breaks and the lunches. And then it takes an hour to get home. Mm-hmm. You've literally spent most of your life at getting ready for work, leaving work and being at work. And mm-hmm. at a certain point that becomes very draining. And when you're at home and you're doing more like hybrid work you're able to actually just shut down your computer i don't know go do a load of dishes or something i don't know but um being able to take some mental breaks for yourself and being able to shut up shut off for like a couple minutes to just regroup yourself and get back into the mindset of whatever next you have to do and so i like how you were able to actually bring a perspective of what that myth has actually brought to society, really. And you make a great point about mental health. There have been several studies over the past couple of years that have shown that hybrid and remote workers report much better mental health overall than in-person folks, especially during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Because like you said, you need to take a break. If you're at home, there's all kinds of adulting that you have to do outside of a work environment. You know, just because we're at work doesn't mean life stops. And so, you know, that could mean everything from checking on a kiddo at school, uh, doing the dishes, you know, um, doing other work around the house, running an errand, you know, or just getting out of the house and going to work at a coffee shop. You know, your computer works with Wi-Fi just as well there as it does in a tiny cubicle. And so as humans, we all have these different needs. You know, we have um, different things that we have to take care of in our lives. And so when you allow people the flexibility to go and take care of those things, it's not something that is looming on the horizon for them. It's not just another stressor that they have to work around to, you know, to be productive. And so giving people that freedom to say, listen, we know life is not just work. You have a lot of other stuff on your plate. If we can give you the flexibility to take care of that, it pays dividends for the company, for the business. Because the worker is going to look at that and be like, man, when I used to work at X other company, I didn't have any of this. I had you know, a one-hour round-trip commute between morning and afternoon. I had, um, like, I didn't eat as well because I, you know, I, I didn't have the time to um, you know, make my meals from home or, or go walk around to, you know, during my lunch break, I had to just kind of sit, work, 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 work. And you think about that and you're like, man, I feel so much better when I'm able to do all of these things. And the company that allows me to do that, well, that's a big plus mark in their favor. What I mentioned earlier about people paying more, okay, what is my time actually worth? You know, if I can do the dishes, go to a coffee shop, pick up my kid, um, you know, I don't have to do daycare. If I can do all of those things, how many thousands of dollars is that worth to me at the end of the day? Well, guess what? You do the math, it might actually end up being worth more for you to stay at a company where you're paid less. And those are the kinds of forward-looking companies that, hey, we care about our, our employees' mental health, you know? 
you need mental health days. You know, a sick day is not when you physically can't crawl out of bed and make it to work. You know, if, <sighs> if you don't have two broken legs, you should be in here. You know, that, that mentality is, is not appropriate for the 21st century, right? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't reflect the belief, the generational belief of millennials and Gen Z. Um, you know, that, that generational shift is huge because one of the biggest things, and there's two things that millennials and Gen Z report that elder Xers and boomers do not. And the number one is mental health. Millennials and Gen Z look at mental health as just as important as physical health. And understanding the complexity of what that means for those workers, those companies that do so, that provide you the flexibility to take care of things, to take mental health days, right, that have employee assistance programs of of more than just one or two sessions and things where they're actively trying to help you, those are huge points for retention and your overall well-being of your workforce. I mean, it's a no-brainer, but it's a generational gap because boomers, as a general rule, don't talk about mental health. It was not how they were raised. It's not something they talk about. In in general, on surveys, um, boomers don't report it as something really, truly important, and especially not something work-related, right? For many of them, yeah, maybe they've been in therapy, but it's quiet, right? They don't talk about it. It's not, it's like, well, yeah, yeah, but you know, it's, you know, don't, we don't, we don't talk about it here at work, right? Millennials and Gen Z, it's like, nah, man, I got an appointment. I'm, I'm going to go see my therapist. Like, sh- screw you. This is my time off. This is my time, mm-hmm. you know? So that is one huge difference between elder Xers, boomers, and then Gen Z and millennials. The other one is where meaning is derived because millennials and Gen Z want their work to have a greater social impact. They want the place that they're working to be aware of the broader world and not to be solely focused on profit. Millennials and Gen Z as group, overwhelmingly, like 80 plus percent of millennials and Gen Z when polled say, yes, I want my work to matter. Not just for my bottom line and my pocketbook, but for other people in the world, right? And if you look at kind of the age breakdown, so um, I'm an elder millennial, so I turned 40 this year, right? And so millennials are kind of about in that 42 to 27 age range, right? Which means that all millennials are now in the workplace, right? There's There's no more kids in high school. There's no more college kids. Millennials make up a majority of the workplace. And then Gen Z, right? The elder Gen Z, those are the folks that are are really starting their careers, kind of that 18 to 27, they're they're starting to come in. And so if you look at, at where those two generations are, the social impact is huge. Because we're all looking at the future and we're thinking, oh boy. We got some challenges on the horizon. <laughs> um, whereas, frankly, boomers don't report social impact as something that they really thought about. And part of the reason for that is they're they're close to retirement. I, I mean, as a general rule, as a group, see, I think the the youngest boomer is about 62, 63, kind of where your generational cutoff is, right? So the youngest boomer is already in their 60s. So in less than 10 years, all baby boomers are going to be retirement out, right? And so that 
what's really important now and where you're looking over the next 10 years, there's a gulf, right? And as those kind of elder Xers are kind of moving into that as well, they're in their late 50s, moving into their 60s, looking over the next kind of 10 to 15 years, hey, where do I want to be? You know, what's my retirement looking like? And I had a really, I had an interesting conversation with a, with a, a CEO of a bank. And I, I told her, you know, it's really hard to retain people when you have one group that is looking at retirement and you have another group of young workers that isn't sure there's going to be a world to retire to. And that's, and that's such a profound idea, right? Because a, a certain, a small sub, a subset of millennials and Gen Z rated uncertainty about whether or not they will be able to retire, not because of money, but because the world won't exist in which they can retire. <laughs> Will there be money at, will we even need it when we- Right, it's just, it's such a mind-blowing difference, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that clash, you know, hybrid, remote, in-person, that's just one tiny subset, right? Like that's one of the tiny grains of sand that I think represents part of this generational gulf, how you see the world, how you see the future. What's important to you? Where, you? where do you drive me? What values drive your behaviors? All of that foundational underlying stuff, when it's, when there is a gulf between those two, how are you supposed to address that? You know, And that's a challenge for a business owner that has folks maybe that are at the high level, highly technical, have decades of experience looking to move on, right? And versus maybe young graduates, 21, 22. They're firmly Gen Z, how they've interacted with the world during the pandemic, before the pandemic, digitally, et cetera, versus somebody that has decades of work experience in which there was no digital. You know, reconciling those is, is boy, you got to build a hell of a bridge to get across <laughs> that gulf. Yeah. And so do you have any resources for these business owners that are kind of going back and forth on how they should move forward with the 40 hour work week or just the hybrid, the hybrid workplace. Yeah. I think the first thing to do is gather data, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of making an executive decision and saying, okay, this is how we're going to do it, you know, and everybody fall in line, actually asking the question of what do you want? Asking your current workers, hey, what works for you? What doesn't? Now, it's not, a, it's not a democracy, right? You're the business owner, you're the CEO, sure, okay. Yeah. But the more information you have, the better decision that you're going to make with more buy-in from your employees. And so understanding, first of all, what's possible. You know, if you're the owner of a manufacturing company and you have to have people on the line, you can't really do remote work, right? Yeah. Maybe some of the office folks or whatever might be able to kind of work that in, okay. But if that's not possible physically, okay, then that's off the table, fine. But if you're working in more of a knowledge-based um, business, you know, or strong, take strong facets of that, right? Mm -hmm. Ask your people, what do you want? What's important to you? You know, what, how can I help you meet your needs? And I realized that as, as for business owners, a lot of them is like, whoa, oh, wait a minute. No, they work for me. You know, okay, it's a really tight labor market. 
And if you want to keep the most talented folks, you want to keep and make loyal employees that appreciate you for what you're doing, asking them for feedback, helping them to meet their needs by being flexible is a huge bonus for you. So get that data. Ask people, what do you want? Right? Do you want hybrid? Do you want remote? What can we do here? What does that look like? And so when you get the feedback from your employees about what they actually want, and there's going to be disagreement, right? You're never going to get the universal, here's what everyone wants. It's not going to happen, right? So part of being that business owner is understanding, okay, how can I balance the bottom line with the needs of my employees? And so my advice, once you have that data, is work on constructing a new schedule, a new approach, a new environment, a new culture that tries to meet people's needs while at the same time emphasizes that bottom line. And along with that, I would say control less, trust more. If you hired the right people, you got to trust them. Here's what the bottom line is. You give guidance, you have goals, right? And there's consequences if those aren't met. Absolutely. All of that stuff. But trust your people. And if there's folks out there that you don't trust and they're not doing the work, get rid of them, right? If they're not meeting standards and they're not a good fit, it's better for everybody involved, right? You don't want to keep employees around that don't want to be there. That's, that's asking for problems down the road, right? Exactly. You know, so being able to say, listen, I'm going to hire the right people. I'm going to create the environment that works for most of my folks, right? I'm going to try and be flexible as much as I possibly can. And I'm going to work on building that trust and reducing that control. So that's that's my number one takeaway, right? Ask your people, trust more, control less, right? Yeah. So that's number one. The number two thing that I would say is be clear in your expectations. Here's what the rules are. Here's what the consequences are. I want you to do this. And if we don't get this, here's what's going to happen, right? Now. I'm open to how we get to the end goal, right? How we can work through these processes together so that we actually all win. Absolutely. But when people have clear expectations and a clear understanding of if X, then Y, and it's enforced consistently, it's much easier for everybody involved all the way up and down the chain from the CEO all the way to the just hired employee. So, be clear. Make sure that everyone knows what they're supposed to do, how they're supposed to do it, what the consequences are if they don't, and where you're going. You know, what are you doing as a company? <laughs> what, if you're making your widgets, who are you making them for? Why does this matter? Mm-hmm. So be clear, right? So I think those are kind of my takeaways from this. You know, get data, control less and trust more, and be clear in your expectations. If you do those three things, you are going to be far and away ahead of so many other folks that are struggling and floundering in this type in this tight job market. Thank you so much, David, for bringing your insights. This has opened my mind and actually I believe it could possibly help the listeners as well to opening their mind on the hybrid work workplace because I think that there's still that back and forth of that productivity not happening and that kind of that power trip that some CEOs and business owners are having. 
And really, if you want to build a team, you have to be a part of that team or a leader to that team and not have, you're not going to have that control exactly of what they do and what they, of what and where and when they do whatever they want. So I really do appreciate you and your time here today. Thank you so much for having me on. You know, I, you bring up so many great points and the one you just made, there's a psychologist that, that I've trained with in the past and his mantra is leadership is a team sport. You know, you, yeah. you, you have to get everybody on the bus, in the right seats, facing the right direction on the right route. And it is a challenge. It is so hard to do. But there's folks out there that can help you do it. There's a lot of specialists out there, um, whether those are business coaches, consulting psychologists like me, you're not alone. So I would say to any business owner out there that's that's feeling frustrated, overwhelmed, there's lots of folks to help and we can help each other to succeed. And to all of you listening, thank you for being with us. Make sure to give us a rating and a review and let us know how we're doing and we'll see you next time. Hey, thanks so much for checking out our episode today. I really hope you found it valuable and got some good takeaways from it. If you did, do me a favor, subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcasting app and leave a review to let us know how we're doing. If you'd like to learn more about Mission Suite, check us out at www.themissionsuite.com and there you'll find educational resources and information about our platform. Also, don't forget to check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube and be a part of the conversation. And we'll be back soon. Cheers. Cheers.